Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Christine McMichael is the executive director of the Hospice and Palliative Care Foundation of Massachusetts. She kindly joins us today to talk about the impact of COVID on the world of hospice providers. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here to talk about this important and timely issue. It occurred to me that there's so much fatigue in me, emotional fatigue and professional fatigue regarding the approach to the virus, how to manage it and the like. And I'm a couple steps removed. I'm not in the hospital. I'm not in the ICU. And I'm not a hospice worker. Those wonderful nurses who go into the homes or have to deal with people in a hands-on manner. I applaud them. Absolutely. But, absolutely. Was hospice ready to accommodate their programs to the COVID, or was it completely unexpected? Let's start there. We could start somewhere else. Right, yeah, let's start there. Hospice was as ready as anybody else, right? No one really understood the impact of this virus as it landed or descended on us in March of 2020. People were still traveling. One of my colleagues here at the office said, I'm going to California. People were just carrying on, and then all of a sudden, it was a pandemic. Hospices and all medical providers, I think, or any other home care organization had the same, I felt like it was whiplash a little bit, you know, because one day it wasn't an issue and then the next day it was. One day we didn't have a PPE crisis and then the next day we did. Then one day we had a full complement of staff to see all of the patients that were on service. And then the next day we had an algorithm that hospice employees had to follow to ensure that they were healthy and well to be at work. So if you answer this question, yes and no, and yes and no, then you can see patients today. And then you had to perform that algorithm with the patient, call the patient and their family and ask them the set of questions. And if there were any that were answered, fell out of flow with the rhythm, then you couldn't visit that patient today. And then we entered telehealth. Everything evolved quickly. It was almost as if one day we didn't have a pandemic and then the next day we did and everybody had to rally. My experiences when I did work with hospice is how the system embraced that a person be with people, their family, clergy, whomever. Yes. And this just threw us completely onto a different stage. For people sure. were dying alone. And this must mm. have been so difficult. Many of them died in the hospital as opposed to hospice. How did your staff deal with this segregation that they had to develop between themselves mm -hmm. and protect themselves, their patients, and what they saw with families? That's right. For hospice that was typically would have been provided in a nursing home, an assisted living, any congregate setting, the restrictions for visitation were great. While hospice is a, a multidisciplinary program that has, it's really body, mind, and spirit, right? I mean, so the person has an end-of-life illness, and then so many other things are happening. And then the guidelines and regulations came, and that was for the greater good and to keep people safe and well. So there were less people who could visit any of these settings. So folks who would have benefited from volunteer services, who would have benefited from visiting with a chaplain, it was prohibited, again, for safety. However, the impact of that, of people dying alone, has been felt far and wide. Families were greatly impacted with visitation. They couldn't visit. So not only were they not getting supportive visits from a team, family members were not able to visit them. The folks who worked in facilities, the hospices, I think everyone felt like a lot of unfinished business. Typically, there's some time and people work together and things are worked out and the goal is always a peaceful death and it wasn't always peaceful. 
that impacted the workers and the staff and certainly the families. I want to get back to that in greater detail. Early on during the pandemic, there was a picture that went around. It was very touching. It was of a young girl, 20-ish perhaps. She had gotten engaged, and she wanted to show her ring to her grandfather, Mm. and she couldn't visit him. And so she showed it to him through a window, and somebody photographed this. And that seemed to capture where we were going. How did the nurses deal with that separation? How did they emotionally deal with that? I read somewhere that now the estimates are that 40% of hospice staff, just not the nurses, the staff, are suffering from some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder. What happened to the nurses? How are they doing? I think that just as we look where we are now, it seems that there's a lot of talk about this for everybody. I, I think that we've had, as a nation, we're suffering from a collective woundedness. And although people were able to rally and they made extraordinary things happen, like who would have thought of showing their ring through a window or that telehealth would be the answer to any kind of communication for people at end of life or anywhere on the trajectory. We've seen it in all sectors of employment. People are rethinking employment. I need to work on this crazy schedule. I love my job as a hospice nurse, but recent other activity around the mandates for vaccines have made people rethink their work as much as they love it. People are tired. There's fatigue from this hyper-awareness that we all have around masking and safety and not wanting to make people sick and not wanting to get sick ourselves. People are tired. Nurses and hospice teams are tired. However, that said, they are also very resilient. And I've never seen teams, I mean, I've been in hospice for a very long time, so the team I see always is hospice. And to speak to the resiliency of folks when the regulations were lifted and the guidelines were changing, volunteers were coming back. Volunteers, a lot of them are in a more protective age bracket, but there were still volunteers who were, if they were, had a patient in the community, there were volunteers who maintained visitation throughout the pandemic. And in other cases, people were choosing to be safe and and didn't do any visitation. The resilience of the team is something that is, I want to say, to behold that people were continuing to go out. In some ways, I think the the thought was to put themselves in harm's way. To go do a death pronouncement at 3 a.m. would have to drive to someone's house in the middle of the night, leave their family sleeping in in their beds, their children, don and doff full PPE, bunny suits and all, face shields, and then go up to a third floor apartment that maybe had 27 people in their home because someone had just passed a loved one. And then be with that family, do all the things and not have the help of the team sometimes because of the restrictions of the visitations. And then when it was all said and done, go back to the driveway, undo, and then drive home and then change their clothes in their driveway again because they don't want to walk into their house and bring anything in their homes. It was a grueling time in those ways, yet the people who work for hospice are very committed to the work that they do and to providing peace and comfort at end of life. So their resilience was what shined through. I've always been impressed with the duality of what I consider to be the hospice philosophy. For the hospice team to address not only the needs of the patient, the person who is dying, but the family. Exactly. And that part of it got cut off in a large degree. Tell me more about it. Tell me what you saw, what the nurses were saying. Mm -hmm. In general cases before the pandemic, this multidisciplinary team, interdisciplinary in nature, really came together to rally around a patient and his or her family at a most critical time and in life. So everybody in the family is dealing with their own things 
and then enter a dying person. And everybody deals with things differently. So that's the beauty of the team is that there are social workers, there are chaplains or spiritual care providers, there are those volunteers. There are hospice aides, there are bereavement counselors, obviously the nurses and the physicians. But when you think in this holistic way that this family has this team available to help them process and cope with the upcoming loss and their own unique coping mechanisms, right? And in every family, there are things, there are people with different situations that are already happening. Someone in the family might say, you know, my, my cousin's having a very hard time with this. His faith is shaken. It's just rocked his world. He'd love to speak with the chaplain. Is there a way we can arrange that? So chaplain meets with the cousin. They may have small children who are carrying on with life and they get that mom sick, but what does that mean? Does it mean she's not going to be here? Bereavement counselors can work with those children. And so when those folks were challenged, because they still did this, once telehealth really kicked in for people, they were able to meet with those children and they were doing it on a, on a device. They were able to sometimes get still crayons and markers over there and to be able to do some of the activities they would do if they were in person. All of these things that people did as I said, it threw everyone a curveball, I think. But then once the teams realized that the needs were still there, they were creative in their abilities to, to serve the families when needed. Obviously, it was different and it was impacted and it wasn't to the greatest extent possible. But the onset of telehealth, bringing telehealth on board did help to some degree and it allowed some connection for those folks to be able to process all that was happening. We tend to forget because the media doesn't really address it, that a lot of folks died from other diseases, not necessarily COVID. And right. the, the presence of the COVID interfered with, interfered with their ability to have these normal processes as well. That, that brings up another question, and maybe it's just my limited watching of television. I don't recall seeing maybe anything about the role of hospice nurses and the media, and rightly so, they spoke about ICU nurses, and that's an important part of this process, to be sure. Has the media given enough attention to the hospice domain? That's a great question. I think that because nobody likes to talk about death, and by and large, we're a death-denying culture or society in that there's always somewhere else we can go. Here we are in Massachusetts and, or New England, and, and if there's an illness, someone said, well, we've got to go to Boston. I knew a friend who said there's a doctor in Texas, right? There's always something else we can do. So the subject of death and the acceptance of death is a challenge in and of itself. Very often, I'm at a lot of meetings, things around public health, and certainly through the pandemic, all, all hands on deck, right? So with public health and planning. I hear a lot. If only we didn't call it hospice. Because why? Because whenever we say hospice, people know that it means end of life. When a referral to hospice is made, even again, pre-pandemic, people would say, well, we're not there yet. And the person's a couple weeks away from death. We don't want to give up hope. It is not a surprise to me that the media didn't focus on hospice during this time and more on the disease and the nature of it and the spread and all of the other things. But generally speaking, I think that it is because we are an immediate gratification society and there's always another answer. There's got to be something that's going to keep us from the dying process. I wasn't surprised that it wasn't addressed, but I am thrilled and glad and I'm humbled every day that 
there is this extraordinary group of people who are committed to really the philosophy of hospice, which is that you matter because you are you, and we will do all that we can not only to help you die peacefully, but to help you live until you die, which was the founding premise from Dame Cicely Saunders, who brought this modern hospice movement to the United States. So that's the essence of it. But again, I'm not surprised that it is not always on the forefront of people's minds. Have you any sense that the hospice staff, at whatever level, mm-hmm. are angry at the way things occurred, frustrated that there may be a resurrection and they'll have to do this all again? Are they burnt out? Because we keep thinking, oh my goodness, we keep hearing that come the winter months, we don't know what we're going to see. And mm-hmm. the vaccination rates are going up, which is good. That's excellent. And Merck has this potential medicine that will be an antiviral. I hope it works. In terms of just anticipation, does a nurse say, oh, you know, I'll do it because I'm a professional, but oh my God, I don't know emotionally if I can do this that many more times. Oh, yes. Yes, we're absolutely hearing that. And that is from across the disciplines. It isn't only the nurses, it is all, all disciplines. Because as I said, without sounding like a Debbie Downer, because I do believe overall as a community, hospices have rallied and the, the professionals, as you say, who have done the work have been professional. But it has been grueling on a heart and soul to do this every day. And then to be fighting the fight as a consumer of the world where everyone who provides healthcare services is also a user of healthcare services or also lives in the world. So you're fighting the good fight every day when you go to work and it's exhausting. And then you got to deal with your family and your children or your elderly parents and keeping them safe. Children are going through the whole school situation even now as we maybe face the surge or wherever we are in this possible, as you say, in the winter. Children are being sent home from school because of exposures or close contact classes rooms are closing and then they're dealing with not only the work that they do every day, but oh, now their two or three kids have to be home because the school had a, an exposure. So they're all back to virtual learning. It's a balancing act and, and it gets weary for sure on the soul. As you say, they do it because they're professionals and they're committed to their work, but it takes a toll. And one of the things that takes a toll on me is when I watch the various news reports and some of them don't do it anymore, but on the TV set, there was a banner of how many people have died. Yeah. There is a certain real disbelief and and difficult-to-grasp notion that there were over 650,000 extra deaths because of this. Now, extra, some people were sick anyway, and the COVID just complicated things, and we know that. But the bulk of this is over 650,000 people died from this. I don't know where to put that in my emotional head. And, I'm with uh, you on that. It's a st- it's staggering, and it, it's yeah, it's a uh, it's very hard to fathom. It's hard to reconcile. When I see people die from cancers or whatever the condition may be, hospice has really developed very good protocols by and large that people do not die in pain. They minimize it as much as they can. Mm-hmm. But early on, the good doctors didn't know what was going on. And that just left an emotional scar in me because I'm, I, I, I don't know where we're going with this. I don't know what we're going to learn as a political society, a religious society, a medical society about the mm-hmm. pandemics. When I was in medical school, Albert Sabin of the Sabin Oral Polio Vaccine was one of my teachers. Now, oh, I, was, wow. I remember him talking about public health and the importance for CDCs and aggressive care and preparing our society 
viruses have a nasty ability to win. Now, and I saw this posted somewhere recently, and I should be able to reference it, apparently 14 diseases have effectively been taken off the human table because of vaccines. That's wonderful. Right. But I, I just wonder from what you see, because you are the groups that deal with one of the more emotionally challenging phases of life. Right. I guess people want to know that the death was not caused by something that was human made, human right. complicated, that it was it was cancer. I'm sorry you had it, that's a horrible thing. I just wonder if the nurses feel that challenge in their minds that how many people could have been saved there had been more vaccinations. I, I read yesterday right. the estimates were that 90,000 deaths could have been prevented. When a hospice nurse goes in and sees some poor soul with COVID, does that bother them as well that had you been vaccinated, and it's not perfect, it's never 100%, you wouldn't be right. here. And I, right. I'm, I'm bouncing because I'm not clear how to formulate this in my head. Do you get that sense of frustration in the nurses or concern or amazement? Anything like I have. That? Yeah, I have heard that from nurses and actually in the news on several reports and in readings as well, articles where medical professionals, and again, I've heard it from hospice folks, have said, I think some physicians, well, I know some physicians said, can I get the vaccine now? They thought they were maybe recovering and it was too late and they were already on the trajectory of, you know, COVID was going to be the end result for them and that was going to end their life. And doctors, nurses, anyone on the on the teams have all expressed the heaviness of that, of someone saying at end of life, can I get the vaccine? Or I wish I had gotten the vaccine. I think that's been a pretty consistent message, knowing that something could have either prevented that person getting the disease or the impact of the disease would have been less and perhaps not death. It's a heavy, heavy, heavy load for and, professionals. And it needs to be addressed as individuals, be it spiritually, if they need a psychotherapist, sure. in whatever domain, because it's part of their life. I saw a very interesting cartoon. I'll try to describe it as best I can. It's a mother talking to maybe a child who is six years old, something like that. And the child looks up and sees the smallpox vaccine scar on the mother's upper arm. Yeah. And the child says, Mommy, what's that? And she says, it's a smallpox vaccination scar. And the little girl says, oh, when am I going to get it? And the mother says, you don't need to. Mm -hmm. I've seen that one as well. Yes. Powerful, very powerful. I, I wish more people would have seen that. Your work is so necessary, and I thank you so much. We could talk about this for hours. Your contribution to a phase of life, part of the circle of life, is invaluable, and please extend, I don't know, thanks doesn't feel like a big enough word. I understand that. Christine McMichael is the executive director of the Hospice and Palliative Care Foundation of Massachusetts. She has been very kind to talk about the world of hospice in the COVID challenge. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.